and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we bring you an update on the geopolitics around climate change from Sharm El Sheikh, COP27, and from Bali with the G20. Plus, we have music from The Daily Maverick featuring Anneli Kampfer. Thanks for being here. Friends, so I'm home. I made it back from Sharm at the weekend after uh, a very um, interesting and enlightening time at COP27. I've got to say it was a it was a vast COP uh, and very confusingly laid out for those who weren't there. Uh, for some reason, everybody kept getting confused about the different locations where the p- places were. I've never seen more people wandering around, wondering where the room is that they're looking for, although that's always a feature of these things. So let's sort of unpick where we are thus far. We're recording this on Wednesday the 16th. Uh, we'll probably do another one of these next week. But there's been a lot going on, both in Sharm and also, of course, the G20 is now meeting, interestingly, mm. during the COP in Bali. And there's a lot happening there, too. So where should we start? Let's start with 1.5 degrees centigrade. The heart <laughs> where, where we kind of left of our off efforts. For... Yeah. That's right. So there has been a lot uh, in the press and certainly in uh, at the COP itself about whether countries are backsliding from 1.5. Are they actually uh, not willing to reiterate a commitment to 1.5? And interestingly, that responsibility was for a little while uh, delegated or exported over to the G20 in Bali, hoping (laughs) that there would be some clarity there before it was bounced back to, to COP27. So I'm interested in how you took that text to the two of you. I'm a little bit concerned because it's not a clear, absolutely clear commitment to 1.5. The text that I read said resolved to pursue efforts, which sounds extraordinarily like the sort of um, ambitious but still timid language that we got in 2000. And fifteen out of uh, out of the Paris Agreement, and I thought that we were actually beyond that with uh, with the one point five degree report that we had later on. So some people were saying, "Okay, Bali has now clarified that we are back on track, and uh, and that has to be incorporated into the cover decision that everyone is working on." But I didn't read it quite as clear as that. How did you all read it? (laughs) Paul? (laughs) Well, I mean, look, Christiana, I'm not able to interpret a text the way you can. Um, But I think I understand the principle here. And ultimately, it boils down to whether we accept this is a global emergency or not. Because if the language isn't as strong then we just kind of carry on. But if the language is strong, we we halt a large number of activities and we we change the way we, we live. I'm going to offer just one reflection here, uh, which is that uh, about our grandparents, actually, and our great-grandparents. I, I knew my grandparents. I never knew any of my great-grandparents. Um, CO2 in the atmosphere, as you know, has been between 180 and 280 parts per million for 800,000 years. And we've increased it 50% in one lifetime. We've done more in one lifetime than 10,000 lifetimes. It's an absolute global emergency right now. And 1.5 and the focus on a firm belief in 1.5 is the correct response to that explosion. We're actually in the middle of an explosion in geo geophysical terms, um, which is why that language must be so um, intense and 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 demanding. One lifetime, hours. That's the problem, isn't it? We've done this. Most of us, you know, those who are here now. Anyway, no, I completely agree with that, Paul. And Christian, I had the same thought and I did look it up and it is rough. It is basically the same wording of the G20 from last year that they've copy pasted over. 
Um, that in itself is slightly concerning that they're sort of not re-examining these principles and strengthening commitments. They're just taking chunks of text. And how much consideration did that really have? I mean, I'm sure everyone looked at it, but that's different to negotiating something new. But nevertheless, I was pleased to see it there. I mean, one thing that I have picked up a lot of is that there are groups of countries in, in Sham who are trying to soften that number and to try to say, well, look, 1.5 is now out of reach. We don't think it's credible. And bizarrely, the arguments that I've seen in some of these documents are that they are sort of referencing activists and scientists as their mandate for saying this. They're saying, scientists are saying it's impossible. Activists are saying, tell the truth. So therefore, let's abandon 1.5. Of course, that logic, nobody wants them to abandon 1.5, least of all scientists and activists. That is a, a, a logic that has been utilised and manipulated for political ends, whereby those narratives have been utilised to be more convenient for countries that don't want more ambition. Um, so I was pleased to see it in the G20, and I'm assuming that that now means it will have to be reiterated in the cover text of the Sham Declaration that comes at the end of the week. Uh, but I agree with you, it was pretty soft. Yeah, it probably will be reiterated, but in this rather soft version, which, um, as we said, we were hoping to strengthen the language around. But um, but at least, at least, yes, uh, sticking sticking to the 1.5 rather than slipping beyond that. Um, so let's see, let's see what happens. And just for listeners to know that, yes, there are many decisions that come out of the COP, but perhaps from a political perspective, the most important always is what, what is some people call the cover decision, which mm. is the, uh, the, the decision that comes first. It'll be the first decision of the COP. And, uh, that usually is led by the COP presidency and what the COP presidency has done up until now is uh, circulate some bullet points of issues that they might want to include. And the work over the next few days is to actually begin to put some text onto those um, bullet points. So stay tuned for uh, for what comes out of that. Should we move over to Just loss one and more damage? point. Just one yeah. more point before we leave that is I have to give a nod to, um, you know, the, the infrastructure and the brilliant people in the progressive business community who are so good at mobilizing in support of these things when they're under risk. So when it became known that 1.5 was under threat, uh, Hala Thomas-Dotter, who is the CEO of the B team, known to many of us and no doubt work known to many listeners, a completely brilliant individual, was, we have to mobilize in response to this. So she was able to lead a group with, very much with you, Christiana, so you should comment on this too, to create this statement, 1.5 is a limit, not a target. Do you want to just say a word about that? Yeah, it is. I, I, it, I don't know, Tom. I mean, for me, you know, if if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? That <laughs> wisdom. Um, but for me, this was so reminiscent of the uh, the support that we got in Paris from the forward. Uh, leaning private sector representatives and and really you know all all credit here to Hala for that initiative. She got of course immediate support from many of us to to put that forward. Um, but it is important for governments to know that there is a sizable chunk of the private sector. Not everyone, as we know, and we'll talk about that also. But there's a sizable chunk of corporations that need that certainty of environmental mm, responsibility yeah. long-term yeah. in order to make their short-term investments. And they are very, very clear about that. So kudos to Hala. Very, very good support. Uh, very broad support. Was able to bring uh, quite a few signatures together very quickly to, uh, to put out uh, a very clear statement in support of 1.5. And just a little bit of context during the COP, not exactly the COP related, but uh, we passed 8 billion humans on Earth during the COP. Yeah. Uh, the 8 billionth human got just, that's a, like just a bit of context here. The stakes are very, very high. Yeah. And my, my daughter is 11 years old. And I remember she had already been born when we passed 7 billion humans on Earth. So that's not very long ago. We're multiplying. We're multiplying. And, you know, what do you want to look out for? It's, it's, it's just to bring this down, you know, in, in, in ponds or something, the algae, they kind of bloom and then they take up all the oxygen and then they decay. And uh, we don't want that to happen to us. So let's just pay real let's, good let's, attention. Let's stop okay. taking up all the oxygen. That's okay. <laughs> 
Exactly. Just laughing. A happy, slightly nervous laugh. Loss and damage, folks? Let's do it. Tom, you want to introduce what that is all about? Well, I mean, you know, as we touched on last year, the loss and damage negotiations are one of the key um, issues under discussion happening at Sham. And there is a collective appreciation, I hope I can say, for the, for the very strong moral case that can be made for the fact that climate change has largely been caused by one group of people, those in the industrialized countries, and its worst impacts thus far are being experienced by another group, those are in developing countries and emerging economies. So therefore, it is only right that industrialized countries should help those countries to cover the costs, not only of adaptation, but also loss and damage to, re to provide reparations of a kind for things that are irreparably lost. Now, this is obviously a hot button issue, and was and is continues to be um, a major issue in the negotiations. And we will have to wait until the end of this week to see how it's really landed. Um, so far, the major emitters, um, the G7 certainly, no one has come forward and said, we will put money into this. They're terrified of starting and creating this principle because they don't know how far it will go in terms of money. Um, the UK and the US certainly haven't put any money into this, but we are seeing some shifts. Um, some loss and damage donations have been made by Austria, by New Zealand, by Ireland, by Scotland, um, a range of others who are coming forward to provide funds to what's called the Santiago Network, which is a UN scheme that provides technical assistance to countries faced with damages from climate-fueled natural disasters. So it's sort of a first step towards this. There's also something called the Global Shield, which was launched by the G7 rich countries and the Climate Vulnerable Forum uh, to help those countries who are on the front line of climate impact. So these are the sort of first steps in this direction to try to identify how we as a global society will deal with it. I don't feel like this issue is fully resolved yet. We're, as I said, we're recording on Wednesday. I think we'll probably know more by the weekend. And this might be something we go into in more depth next week. What is astonishing to me is how slowly this topic has moved. It was, uh, as, as we know, uh, a sizable discussion in the Paris Agreement itself and in the lead up to Paris. So it's not a new issue. It has no. been on the table for as long as I can remember. And with very, very little advance, very Why? little progress. Why is it so slow? But I think it's so slow because industrialized countries who would be the ones who would have to pony up some money for this are very concerned that this is a bottomless pit because it is completely impossible to foresee or to estimate how much uh, in in quantitative terms, in, in money terms, how much is loss and damage actually going to represent. And so I think they're just very concerned about signing basically, you know, a, a, a blank check, so to speak, from their perspective. Um, now, of course, from developing countries' perspective, it's like, excuse me, you're the ones that caused this, so you should be assuming some responsibility here. Now, um, as we know, and as we have already mentioned on the podcast, the developing countries were able to put loss and damage as a separate agenda item at this COP, which uh, in in COP uh, procedure is quite uh quite a success. And interestingly enough, I was just interviewed um, by some press that is sitting um, at the COP and they pointed out to me that it is women who are on the lead on this. The two ministers, uh, Chile and Germany, they're both female um, ministers. Mia Motley, the PM uh, who is very much behind this from the Caribbean. And many, many of the ones who are negotiating are women. So very interesting that here again, we see women with their long-term uh, awareness really trying to, to fight for this issue. Now, I think where this is going to come down by the end of this week is whether developing countries are able to negotiate the creation of a new institution, a fund, a facility um, that would begin to harvest some of the money that is beginning to trickle in, or whether the only thing they're going to uh, get out of this week is yet again a procedural decision yeah. of we, we, we shall, you know, consider this next year, which is basically where we've been for years. Um, and so, so that's the big fight right now. Are we actually going to get something established or not? And it reminds me, 
if I may say so, of the moment of the creation of the Green Climate Fund, mm. uh, which was also a huge discussion about whether that's going to be procedural or finally a new institution. Interestingly enough, it seems to me to, to bring in another topic that is very important here at the COP is what I would call the country-specific packages that are being put together, the one for South Africa that emerged from last year and then the one that has just emerged now for Indonesia uh, to move out of coal and uh, others in preparation for Vietnam, Senegal, India, etc. It seems to me that there is more willingness on the part of industrialized countries to do country-specific packages than there is to create a an institution that would harvest funds and then um, disperse those funds multilaterally. And I wonder whether, because that is the model that we have seen certainly on mitigation, um, whether that's going to also be true for adaptation, loss, and damage. Whether we're not there yet, but um, can we fast forward, and this is more of a question, more of a statement, can we fast forward five years from now that we would begin to see region-specific packages, let's say, for the Pacific Islands or yeah. the Caribbean Islands, region-specific packages for loss and damage that there would be more political support for than for the creation of a new institution? Question mark, question mark. Mm. Uh, Christiana, I want to particularly salute your observations about uh, feminine leadership. Uh, the two two aspects of it here, I think, are important. One is not seeing a sort of zero sum game, so not seeing somebody else's advantage as your own disadvantage, uh, which I think is a key key point here. And and you also mentioned long term thinking, and I, and I want to particularly draw attention to the issue of refugees here, because you know if if you essentially um, say, well, you know, they, they, what happens outside of the borders of my country is a, it, I don't care about, you know, we, we, we've got my own, I've got my own political issues here in in my rich OECD country, so I'm not going to worry about anywhere else in the world. Um, as other countries, you know, unfortunately and tragically, um, uh, outrageously um, may face collapse. Uh, you know, millions of people have to leave. You know, they, they're not just going to stay somewhere and and and, and suffer. You know, death. They're, they're going to have to move. So, it, you know, the only way to really uh, um, help uh, support people. Uh, the security of the world is to help people where they are. And just like some specifics, um, I picked up from Edie, um, the, the, uh, the, the, the media, that um, various nations in the, in the continent of Africa are already seeing 10% of GDP equivalents being spent on adaptation and damage repair annually. These are crazy numbers. Crazy um, numbers. So just like, just building on this, I wanted to observe that Inside countries, we're all familiar with this idea of inequalities, and we've got you know really huge problems with wealth inequalities in our countries. You know that people will you know Bernie Sanders talks about the fifty richest people in the U.S. having wealth equivalent to the hundred and seventy million poorest people in in the U.S. So you've obviously got massive wealth inequalities within countries that are being kind of managed and causing strains in certain ways. But of course, it's playing out internationally here. We're having to look at the world as a an integrated system, and that's the only way you can really um, address the world and its problems. Problems in, 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 you know, we now realise, and that's the the test climate change is teaching us. I think. So I, I I think that's true, Paul. And I would connect what you just said to one of the reasons why I agree with what Christiana just said about the fact that we're probably going to see adaptation and loss and damage finance being regional, and then after that, let's come to the very interesting Indonesia deal. Um, a couple of groups that I know have been at COP27 are right of centre communication strategists from the US and the UK who are there following the loss and damage negotiations. And the conversations I've had with people are that one of their objectives there is to understand it sufficiently to weaponize it politically in their domestic countries. And you can understand how appealing this would be to Republicans. Mm -hmm. Democrats are trying to like make you feel guilty and pay reparations around the world. And the same sadly would be true in many European countries that that would be a powerful political message. Now, none of this is new, but to just point out what you just said, which is very admirable and which I agree with, Paul, this has to be a moment of global solidarity and economic solidarity around the world to deal with our issues is at odds with some really toxic politics that are arriving as a result of national 
inequality. So the role of leadership is to thread the needle between those two and be able to be good global citizens while doing enough to keep your political mandate at home. But there's plenty of people trying to chuck rocks to bring that down politically. It's very hard to hold those pieces together. Especially right now with yeah. the crazy fuel and food prices around yes. the world. Um, it is just, uh, it, it's tinder right for that yeah. kind of uh, that kind of argument and it's cheap yeah, shots yeah. and it's easy to land them right but it's yeah, yeah. yeah. you know with, yeah. With, with you know if you just take the us you know with 40 to 50 million people below the poverty line it's very easy for for any politician to say look you know we, we can't give money away to, yeah. to other countries exactly. you know, we, we, there's so much but but i think that that you know back to this kind of zero sum game idea um, it turns out actually that um a healthy world economy, uh, you know, is good for everybody. You know, there, there's no economic advantage um, for a whole bunch of people being kind of flooded and starving. You know, we, 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 that, that shows a kind of complete misunderstanding of how the world economy can support everybody. So threading that needle is about drawing a distinction between inequality within countries and, and the broader best interests of our global community. Mm. I, yeah. I agree with that. And I think the way, what that looks like in the end is what Christiana said. It's not big, easily attacked global financing packages that can be recast as reparations packages. It's a deal for Indonesia. It's a deal for South Africa that end up being more about implementation. I mean, just to pivot to that for a sec, that just energy transition partnership process, as it's been called, to do big deals for countries one by one, um, actually looks like it's really landed a bit of a a coup de grace in Indonesia. This was a big deal last year oh, yeah. in South oh, yeah. Africa. Now a $20 billion deal pulled together by the US, Japan and Indonesia with lots of partners, half of that being public money, half being private. That's very exciting, particularly when you consider that, you know, there are more in the in the pipeline to come out looking at Vietnam and other different countries. So I think that's a real cause for celebration that there's so much momentum behind those deals now. Yep. Yeah, and 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 it is support for those countries that are so coal dependent to yeah. actually close uh, close their coal, which is inefficient anyway and no longer competitive, but uh, but still a very much a part of the economy. So, I, I it's it's very interesting because these country specific packages are now, as I said, being put on the table for mitigation or for phasing down, not phasing out. Yikes. Should be phasing out. Um, Phasing down coal and other fossil fuels, which, by the way, is yet another discussion, very, very vibrant discussion at COP27, whether the cover decision is going to include a phasing down, not a phasing out, of all fossil fuels and not just coal. So that would be building on last year's decision. But, um, but, but, but yeah, sorry, just to close that loop, that model that we're seeing of specific packages for mitigation, that is my question, whether five years from now we'll be seeing things that are similar for, um, for loss and damage. But to move to um, positive things that are coming out of the COP, um, at, uh, on the margins of the G20, Biden and, and Xi Jinping met for, I think, four hours and, um, wow, and came, came out again saying, yes, they are willing to ring fence climate change from it's all of their news. other discussions. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the fact Yay. that Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan and all of those, uh, all of those problems have been sort of put on one side of the ledger and on the other side of the ledger is the fact that the two of them will again collaborate. And as we know, this has been absolutely key to progress when those two largest emitters actually agree, then it tends to be um, the direction that is set for the multilateral discussions and uh, so much more is possible. So so quite exciting. And then to know that John Kerry and uh, Minister Xi Jinping, which, who have been there for years as the US and China number one negotiators are now having been given authority on the part of their heads of state, respective heads of state, to have more in-depth discussions between the two of them at COP27. So very, um, very exciting that, uh, that that has happened just in the nick of time. Yeah. 
just before you, before they closed. And on that, I mean, you know them much better than I do, Christiana, but it was an open secret amongst certain people at COP that they were meeting last week and having dinner yeah, and yeah. connecting. So no doubt they engineered this to a certain degree, right? And tried to find yes, a way. But, but yeah. they weren't allowed to come out with anything no, no, because no. their heads of state hadn't met. Yeah. So they were, you know, working behind the scenes yeah. uh, and still needed their bosses to give them the uh, the green light. So e- exciting. Speaking of working behind the scenes, and this is in a slightly more lighthearted tone, uh, it was my birthday at COP last week. So it was my yes, birthday on Friday. Birthday, Thank you very Tom. much. Thank you. And I talked to my good friend and colleague, Christiana, the night before, and I said, oh, you know, it's always my birthday at COP. And, <laughs> and this year, I'm, I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm just going to have a really quiet one. And she said, oh, okay, fine. Fine, no problem. Oh, That's good fine. luck with that. I think you might have told the wrong person. She told everybody that she knows at COP that it was my birthday. I have never had more restaurants burst into spontaneous applause as I walked in. The Bezos Earth Fund drinks event that I was at that had heads of state and heads of delegation. I was called up on the stage. Everyone sang me happy birthday. I got cakes given to me in restaurants. So thank you very much, Christian. I will be considering an appropriate revenge for that little little trick you played on me from 6,000 Yeah, well, no, no worries. Your secret is safe with me. I can see that. <laughs> As if, as if. Um, There's one or two other quick things I just want to mention in terms of things that have struck me from the week, Um, principally on forests. So as we all remember, last year there was this big commitment on forests that came out of Glasgow, and there was a lot of scepticism that met it because there had previously been the New York Declaration on Forest that had been created with great fanfare in 2014 and had failed to deliver its objectives. So when the world came back together and made a new commitment on ending deforestation in Glasgow, there was a lot of scepticism as to whether it was going to continue. And there's been huge work behind the scenes, led in large part by Zach Goldsmith in the UK government and many others, that led to multiple political forums happening um, in Sharm, under the title of the Forest Climate Leadership Partnership. And actually that now looks like it has the infrastructure and the momentum behind it to really turn into an exciting forum to really implement the commitments from Glasgow and ensure that this is the turning point on deforestation. So that was a really good thing that I went to a few events and saw happen along the margins. And then big question, what is going to happen at the uh, COP15 of biodiversity that is meeting in Montreal? whether they will be able to reach uh, a, a global goal um, agreement there or not. But we will have a whole episode uh, dedicated to that as the time comes near. Um, I, I just wanted to mention one more thing now about COP27, and that is um, a slightly sobering thought, or maybe it's a happy thought, depending on where you sit which is that, again, my sense is that the multilateral political negotiations, frantic and frenzied as they are, are still lagging behind the progress in the real economy because demand destruction of fossil fuels Mm. is absolutely here. It's not going to be reversed. It is only going to be accelerated. And so it seems sort of a little bit, and anticlimactic if the uh, decision that comes out, the cover decision says that, yes, we all agree to phase down fossil fuels. Well, of course, because demand is being destroyed and, uh, and there is no uh, extra investment in fossil fuels. In fact, 25% of the investment into new energy that went in this year um, has actually been into renewable energy and storage, which is the transition package. Um, and it's reached $700 billion this year. So it, it's, it's a little bit anticlimactic uh, to know that uh, eventually governments do get the memo that um, there is there there is less interest in fossil fuels, and then you know, with huge fanfare, they come out saying that uh, that they are going to phase down, uh, and and they don't even step up to saying phase out uh, fossil fuels. In any event, the good news is that the real economy is moving forward, and that is not surprising since eighty percent of the population of the global south lives in countries that are importers of fossil fuels. Hence, all of those people are benefited by substituting those completely, crazily expensive fuels and developing their own domestic clean sources. And, and you know, on that, how inspiring, Christiana, that, you know, it turns out that 
if everybody in the cold countries, you know, puts on a big, big thick jumper uh, in the winter time, and if everybody in the really hot countries, you know, takes off their jacket and and turns the aircon down, um, we we can so, kind of solve this problem together. You know, the unity makes the force, and that ability for people to to recognize that, you know, in the end, we, we uh, the many many hands make light work, and we can combine to truly do something about this. So I'm very excited by demand destruction, which is another name for everyone coming together and just doing the right thing. Can I say something? quickly about the cop which relates to what you just said and we'll come back to you yeah. paul i mean i think it's a great point christiana and i think my i've been reflecting a bit on what cop 27 was like and what it felt like coming back and it was interesting because in in the old days there was this dynamo of energy which was the negotiations that had to deliver a specific outcome we've talked about this before and there was a range of things outside that provided the mood music for that to be successful. Now it feels like there's this vast swirl of activity that goes on around something in the centre, which is less and less consequential, important though it is, because the real economy has taken over and is moving us forward. There's been great work done, particularly by Nigel Topping, our friend and the Climate Champions team, to try to make sense of that and put your arms around it and say, what does all of this mean? And we should get him on, actually, because he's out of office now for a sort of exit interview in terms of where he think, thought he got to. Yes, let's do that. That <laughs> should be good. But, but, um, but I still had a sense that it was like lots of activity and it was really hard to identify what the there there was, you know, what the outcome was. Did it all add, add up to enough? Was it really solving the problem? And I left a bit conflicted about how important it is that we can do that. I mean, there's two schools of thought, isn't there? One is... We just need as much activity and let's go and let's trust that we get there. And the other is we need to like slice up the universe and work out is it enough and what else needs to be done in different sectors. And I suppose that the answer is a balance. But at the moment, it felt like a lot of noise, a lot of momentum. Is it enough? We don't really know. And that's a bit dissatisfying. Well, but that is the whole purpose of the uh, famous or infamous global, global stock, stock take, take that is due yeah. to take place next year, where countries are supposed to be self-reporting their emissions and emission reductions, and that will lead to one global stock take, which is self-reported by governments. But even more exciting, I think, is, and Tom, I don't know what news you have for us on that one is the independent global mm. stock take, which is not a top-down, but rather a bottom-up exercise uh, where companies and cities and, and provinces will nest up, so to speak, uh, their, their self-reporting and come up with a different number so that we can know whether we're actually making progress or not. Well, did, were you able to find out anything about the progress of the independent global stock take? I mean, Tom? I know enough to know that I don't understand the remarkable level of technical capabilities that are required to understand and draw boundaries all over those things. And there's amazing people working on that. We should delve cool into that sentence, with some guests. That was. Yeah, going, going forward. Um, I also think, just to cover that off, the global stock take itself has to have a lot more political power to it than it currently has. Mm. It's likely that at some point in the next six years, we're going to have an official report of is the process put in place by the Paris Agreement and the successive COPs solving our problems? And I suspect the answer is going to be no, it's not. And that moment has to have sufficient political weight to create the platform and the mandate to make the evolutions and the changes that we need to make it fit for purpose. So that's a yep. whole interesting political unfolding that will happen in the next year that we need to stay on top of. Mm. Well, just one more thing that is simply not going to go into this broadcast if Christiana or Tom tell Clay to cut it out, but I'm going to just record it now. Oh, and then no, I'm getting very nervous already. <laughs> It's an absolutely, I don't think I've done this before, but it's a simply shameless uh, salute to colleagues of mine. Um, Christiana, in 2010, you gave a speech at a CDP launch event, and you may remember, you probably don't, that you spoke alongside somebody from the General Services Administration, which is the US government's purchasing department. We've been in business for then for 10 years, and it turns out that President Biden announced that all federal contractors who have received more than $50 million a year from the US government will have to report their greenhouse gas emissions through CDP. Um, amazing that uh, that Woo! has been announced. But what Woo! I want to draw attention to is uh, alongside brilliant colleagues of mine and also wonderful people in the, in, the, uh, in the US government who've made this happen. It's a partnership between the government with its purchasing authority, an NGO and the private sector. And I think that that's a great model and we'd encourage other governments to follow it. So just wanted to kind of salute that particular slightly self-serving, non-commercial, commercial message from the charity I work for. 
I don't think we need to ask Clay to cut that out. What do you I think? think no, I don't think we have to. Although there is one piece we need to amend, which is that when before all this started, before there was a public sector pract- practice at CDP at all, I was dispatched to the United States knowing nothing and used to go and sit in the halls of the Senate trying to meet people that eventually led to a relationship with the General Services Agreement that obviously many people took on. It was you, Tom. On. You made and, this happen. And you just told that story without mentioning that, Paul. It's outrageous. Tom, I am so sorry. I am so <laughs> totally sorry. But you know it. what? It's, it's lots and lots of people. But you I'm stand corrected. All, I'm not at all surprised <laughs> that, you know, all the sunlight and everything makes the tree and all the water and the wonderful leaves. But you have the look of a seed about you, Tom. Well, I would thank, never thank claim. You. I would never claim the outcome. And I have to say, Betty Cremins, who used to work for me in that team, and is, is now actually, sitting yes. in the White House, is the one who I really made that I believe she may have had yeah. no small role in this. Thank exactly. you, Betty. Yeah. Um, I actually think it would be fun to do a whole episode on that story and what happened there. So let's think about whether we can do that in due course. And listeners can look forward to a long conversation on public procurement, which I know is right at the top of everyone's interest list. It's, it's, it's your money, you know. When the, when the government buys things, they're, they're using your money. So, you know, you should have an interest in how they spend it. Um, For okay, US so citizens. We're going to wrap up now. Uh, I have one last thing to share from COP, which is, uh, you have you listened to the bonus that we put out on the future of food? I would encourage you to put it out, to listen to it. Paul, it happened in this amazing place that made me just think of you all the time. This completely brilliant organization, the um, of UN Live, which is the Museum for the United Nations, they were given money to create a huge museum in Copenhagen. And then they decided not to do it, but instead to put these shipping containers all the way around the world with state-of-the-art eye contact video conferencing technology oh, at the end of each eye of contact. them. So you walk in and you share a room with people. And the last episode, which everyone can go back and listen to, there's a table in the middle that butts up against the screen. We had our side where we had our breakfast of croissants. The other side was Kigali in Rwanda, where there was a bunch of activists who had mangoes and avocados. And we shared a room and had a conversation. You can high five, you can chat to each other. It's just like being around a table. And they also were connecting to the high Arctic, to different places in Latin America, to the Amazon. It's an amazing concept. And even in today's world of Zoom and Skype, it still felt fresh and new. So I, and, and I, could it, would it, would it stop? Is it a substitute for flying places, Tom? Yeah, I think so. Isn't that amazing? Think yeah. about Here that, we everybody. Go. Let's yeah. get together. Yeah. Let's invest in these amazing awesome. technologies. Yeah. Super local. That's the most optimistic note we've ever ended on because I completely <laughs> love video communication with all my heart and soul. We will get Molly on the podcast. He runs that. All right. Lovely to talk to you both. Now, um, we have a bit more last order of business, don't we? So... Yes, we should announce that we're going to do a midterm election conversation. Well, I think you just have, Christiane. Oh, yes. Tom's going to do it again. That's so true. Clay's got a choice. Yes, so, Christiane, you're absolutely right. We will do a midterm special. And, in fact, Jennifer Granholm, Secretary of Energy, uh, who was <gasps> on our panel that I moderated at the Clinton Global Initiative a few weeks ago, uh, has said she'll come on and talk about it. So I think that's, if not next week, it's going to be pretty soon. Um, after this conversation, we'll be playing a special Pass the Mic segment recorded by our wonderful colleague Zoe in the halls and corridors of COP27. Stick around to hear fascinating interviews shared by the diverse COP27 attendees that Zoe managed to capture. Um, right, so last order of business is to introduce the music. Today we have a classic from the past, which has been reimagined. Paul, you know that you you know and rather love this song. Tell Do you want to introduce me it? Over and over and over and over again, my friend. You well, you don't believe we're on the eve of destruction. They must be. Now, it'd be great. That's not my favorite song, <laughs> but it's a very it's a very iconic song from back in the day, and it's been reimagined quite brilliantly by this artist. By the Daily Maverick featuring Anneli Kampfer, 2020's Eve of Destruction. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. My name is Gideon Komi. I am an environmental activist from Ghana and a food systems doctoral researcher based in the UK. I'm very angry because the president of Ghana was a cop. And I personally believe he doesn't have the moral authority. He didn't have the moral authority to be here because illegal mining, which is locally called Galamse, is the biggest challenge and threat to the environment and climate in Ghana. And his own political people have been implicated to be carrying out illegal mining that is destroying forests and water bodies in Ghana and he hasn't done anything about it, yet has come to COP 
to make fresh promises. And that is really outrageous and that angers me. And that is why I am here this afternoon. Now, what I'm very much optimistic about is the environmental movement. The tradition of struggle has been key and central to climate and environmental justice. So I believe that the environmental movement has the strength, has the power, and has the courage to confront both businesses and government to address the crisis and also to work outside the political framework, which is not taking us anywhere, to work with local communities to build up resilience and adaptation to respond to the crisis of nature and the climate emergency. And that is why I'm here this afternoon. Okay. Hello, I am Eri Lama. I am an environmental and climate justice advocate from Cameroon. I'm also a climate reality leader with the African Climate Reality Project. One of the issues I'm outraged about at COP27 is the fact that we have policies that have been put on paper for so long and we don't see them being put in place. And Africans should be given the platform to solve their own problems, to identify their problems and solve them at this point in COP. This, it is a privilege that we have COP in Africa this time and we think this should not just go without it being noted that COP27 brought a change to Africa. And to round up, I think when we um, take care of our environment, we are taking care of ourselves. And that is what we in Africa have been trying to do in our little ways, but we lack the capacity to do so. We are causing the least climate problems, but we are having the greatest impact. And we need to be in the position where we can solve our problems by ourselves and not be told which problems we have to solve because we know the problems ourselves and we want to handle them. So uh, great, I am Collins Gamale Hodoli from the University of Environment and Sustainable Development in Ghana. I'm very outraged about how African governments cannot take action to protect their citizens from air pollution. What we need to do is that African governments should scale up air quality monitoring within our jurisdiction. They should make the data open source. They should educate folks on air pollution and its impact on our health and how that can influence behavioral changes. We have the tools we can use to be able to do this. So I'm encouraging and saying that governments of Africa should take the needed steps to do that. Thank you. And what are you optimistic about? Uh, very, okay. I'm just very hopeful that the youth of this generation will take action for a better world. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, bonjour, je suis Salma Osama, je viens du Tchad. Je suis un co-CEO d'une société qui s'appelle Cette Énergie. Uh, concernant ce COP27, uh, je trouve que les, la, les, les entreprises, les petites et moyennes entreprises ne sont pas inclus, beaucoup inclus dans le processus. Uh, des négociations ou bien de, de financement ou ce genre de process. Et uh, concernant le. Mais quand même, je reste optimiste pour uh, la prise en compte de tous les uh, secteurs de l'agriculture, de l'énergie et puis de l'environnement. Je vois que c'est les, uh, les, le thème de cette année et que tout le monde a pris prend compte de ça. Et surtout que l'Afrique. La, quand ils ont pris la décision de faire la nourriture qu'en Afrique, de produire qu'en Afrique, je suis très content pour ça. Yeah, thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Ousmane Aliou, and I'm a Nigerian journalist. I report for the news agency of Nigeria. And uh, what I'm outraged about this uh, conference is the fact that uh, the, the kind of uh, commitment, the kind of pledges that I'm expecting from the uh, developed world, uh, my expectation has not been met. I expected that uh, the developed world would have come up with more commitment in terms of uh, resources to help this developing world that are facing the consequence of this uh, climate change. But uh, nevertheless, I'm still happy that for the first time, lost and damage got itself into the agenda of COP. So that's just what I'm happy about, about this COP. But uh, I still believe that uh, uh, before the end of this uh, uh, event, we still have to, we, we are going to get more commitment 
from the industrialized uh, country of the world. Thank you. Rashida Ferdinand, I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm here with the Climate Justice Pavilion and um, I'm a partner with the cohort, um, HBCU partnership with Deep South Center for Environmental Justice, TSU, and WE ACT. I am outraged about not hearing more about how we're going to really include climate justice in all of the work that's being done globally. Developing countries do need resources, they do need more money, um, and they do need more equity um, on the grassroots level. What I'm optimistic about is um, the work that I'm seeing people doing around wetlands restoration and reforestry. Um, I'm optimistic about something that President Biden stated in his speech about how his simple solutions are in planting trees and doing reforesting. And I hope that um, people pick up on that and start to do more of that. I do that type of work in New Orleans. We're doing coastal restoration work and wetlands restoration work. And I really um, enjoy meeting people from Zimbabwe and South Africa and other places who are doing this type of work globally in their communities um, with people taking the leadership and sustaining um, their spaces to restore their land and water spaces. My name is Dari Akogun. I'm a Nigerian broadcast journalist. Um, one of the things that I was outraged about this COP, one is um, the discussion about the loss and damage. The amount that is being donated, fine countries are actually putting up money, but is a little bit small compared to what is being you know, done for wars, to fight wars. Like the US yesterday you know, dropped $150 million, fine, perfect, but compared to what was you know, dropped for the Ukrainian war is in billions of dollars. So and the damages that is in Africa and the entire world, it cannot be taken care of by, by millions. And what are the things that I'm optimistic about is countries are actually willing to, you know, donate for the laws. And let me, before it actually got to the agenda of this year's COP, it's a wonderful um, development. And it's been talked about the U.S. president yesterday had to come down here to talk about it. The U.K. has dropped, the Belgians, and some other countries too in Europe. I think it's a welcome development. I think all other countries too, especially in the Europe and developed world countries, should look for a way to give back to Africa and also Asia that have actually suffered more of these um, effects of um, climate change, which unfortunately they are not the most people that are contributing to, to it. Thank you very much. Sou Narubio Herreria, Inan, da Ilha do Bananal Tocantins, presidente do Instituto Indígena do Tocantins. O que eu vejo que me deixa muito indignada estando nessa Conferência do Clima é que as reais autoridades climáticas não estão sendo ouvidas de fato, que são os povos indígenas. Nós queremos estar na mesa de negociação. O nosso povo clama por justiça climática. Somos nós os guardiões das florestas que restam no mundo. Portanto, nossas vozes devem ser ouvidas de fato. Nós queremos fazer parte dessa negociação, queremos as nossas terras demarcadas, as nossas florestas protegidas e as nossas mulheres sendo ouvidas. Nós, mulheres indígenas, sabemos o que é a que a Mãe Terra está sofrendo, porque nós também sofremos na pele os abusos dessa concepção de morte, de uma política, da necropolítica, de morte não de vida. E nós geramos a vida assim como a Terra gera a vida. E nós precisamos trazer essa essência para o mundo, não só de concepção de pensamento, mas de essência, uma concepção mesmo de sentido muito maior e muito mais amplo do que a ciência está falando, mas que ela corrobora para o que nós estamos falando. A ciência hoje comprova que nós, povos indígenas, somos os guardiões das, das florestas. Eu sou otimista no sentido que nós, povos indígenas, estamos tomando conta desse espaço. Mesmo que nós não somos prioridades, nós vemos aqui, nós estamos nos articulando, estamos lutando, principalmente as mulheres indígenas. Você vai ver uma grande quantidade de líderes, mulheres indígenas participando, que nós não estamos vendo com outros povos. Se a gente olhar os líderes né, do mundo, nós não, não estamos vendo as mulheres como maioria, mas nós somos a maioria do planeta e as nossas vozes como mulher devem ser ouvidas. Então me deixa muito otimista ver, ver muitas mulheres líderes do Brasil da Amazônia aqui. 
Hi, I am Nuzintle Kumere and I am from Zimbabwe. I am outraged by the fact that they aren't putting loss and damage at top priority. Uh, we have tried pleading with them, but then there's really nothing that they're going to do. And it seems like loss and damage will be put on hold for the next coming few years, but then the climate crisis isn't on hold. But then I'm also optimistic about the older generation letting the youth take over. Uh, there are a lot of youths at this COP and I feel like COP28 there'll be even more youths. So I think that it's going to be better. Hi, my name is Kloli Fuyani from Cape Town in South Africa. I represent Our Kids Climate, also Black Girls Rising. Uh, what I'm most outraged about this COP27 is actually seeing that currently, now with this present, there are still um, fossil food lobbyists amongst us. You know, while we are fighting for the future of our children, there are companies out here who are um, climate criminals who are given um, front seats, you know, um, and it's just so painful to know that they, there's a lot of um, kids and families, especially in the global south, who are feeling the brunt of climate change, who are being displaced, who are struggling to breathe, but yet, you know, our leaders are prioritizing the fossil fuel industry because it brings money, it brings profit. So it's always like profit against humanity. But I'm also very hopeful because we are seeing really um, the voices of the marginalized being given spaces, but also kids. I mean, it's the first year where we have a youth, children in a youth pavilion. And it just makes me feel very hopeful that one day we will win this fight and really put forward the needs of the kids um, so that they could have a better, um, healthy, livable planet to grow up in. Hi, my name is Anneli Gantler, coming to you all the way from the southern tip of Africa. The name of the song is 2020's Eve of Destruction. It is a reworking of a song originally from the 1960s, written by P.F. Sloan and performed by Barry Maguire. The lyrics were rewritten by journalists at Daily Maverick to focus on the biggest crisis looming over humanity today, the climate crisis. It was written to be the strongest messenger of the calamity coming our way and the need for humanity to agree and fight together. We cannot have a solution until we all agree on a common reality. The reason for me recording the song with Dale and Maverick was just for me to do my part. Small individual actions add up and we need a super butterfly to flap its wings and take us into another direction. Please share our song and music video far and wide. This is a rallying cry of our generation. The burning world, it is exploding. Violence flaring, fear and loathing. You're bad enough to scream, but you throw this choking. You don't believe in oil, but it's your car that's smoking. And even the Jordan River has no water floating but you Tell me over and over and over again My friend, oh, you don't believe We're on the eve of destruction Don't you understand what I'm trying to say? And can you feel the fears I'm feeling today? When the threshold is crossed, it's the end of the game. There'll be nothing to save when the world is aflame. Take a look around you, girl. It's bound to scare your boy. And then tell me over and over and over again, my friend. I don't believe we're on the of destruction Yeah, my blood is so mad Feels like coagulating I'm sitting here just contemplating I can twist the truth 
It knows the regulation Handful of senators Don't pass legislation And marches along Don't bring the solution When the human race is so close to disillusion The whole crazy world Is one big confusion And you tell me over and over and over again My friend I don't believe We're on the eve of destruction Think of all the coal that's blazing your soul Then look at your own town spinning down the hole I, you may leave the earth for four days in space But when you return, the same old scorching place The pounding of the drums, the fright and disgrace You can bury your dead, but don't leave a trace Hate your next door neighbor, but don't forget to say grace and you Tell me over and over and over and over again My friend, you don't believe We're on the eve of destruction No, you don't believe We're on the eve of destruction So there you go, another episode of Outrage and Optimism. Hello, I'm Clay, producer of Outrage and Optimism, and this is the end of the podcast where I wrap things up in a nice bow, hand it to you on your way out. The song you just heard was 2020's Eve of Destruction by Daily Maverick featuring Annalie Kempfer. What a great reimagining of the tune. Um, Annalie mentioned it very briefly before the song played, but... There is a music video for this song where the song plays, you can see Annalie singing, and then footage pulled from every corner of the earth showing the devastating effects of drought, flooding, uh, melting ice, forced migration of species, you know, everything all exponentially exacerbated by climate change happening. It, it's, it's really powerful. Link in the show notes to go watch that and share. I actually saw the video right before COP started on the um, Covering Climate Now newsletter, and I was so moved by the video and the performance, and I actually reached out to Annalie and Daily Maverick and asked if we could play the song on the show, and we are so privileged to be able to play it here, so seriously, go watch the music video. It's truly, truly moving. Um, Annalie is an active musician and singer, and so she has more music you can check out in the show notes. I I know we have listeners from South Africa, so please, if you're listening, be sure to go see her perform. She's incredible. And on top of that, Daily Maverick is publishing high-end journalism that addresses humanity's greatest challenge. Their climate crisis reporting is published under the title Our Burning Planet, and Our Burning Planet launched out of a once in 628 years drought that threatened uh, Cape Town, South Africa's water supply. When that happened, you know, a few journalists got together. They concluded that it was irresponsible to report on human-generated global warming with circumspection. So there it is. On an eve of destruction, something beautiful and active was born. So I just think that's so cool. Um, link to our burning planet in the show notes. We love a publication that does music journalism to engage more people about the urgency of responding to the climate crisis. So let's go. All right, I'm fired up. I think you can tell. Thank you so much to all of the Pass the Mic guests that we had the privilege of passing the mic to on this week's episode. Um, I don't know when it's going on our socials yet, but I just talked with our social media manager and at some point over the next week, we're going to share some of those voices on our um, social media channel. So it'll be an opportunity for you to check that out and then also push their messages even further out and pass the mic in your own way. So you'll be able to see that on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, at 
outrage optimism. Pass the mic. All right. Whew. Busy week. Two episodes. Um, did you catch our episode yesterday with the magical shipping container with video communications technology and Tom's conversation with Pea from the IKEA Foundation? Well, it's right there. It's one episode back in our podcast feed. Go check that out. It's waiting for you. And thank you all for the kind messages coming in about our new partnership with TED. We're a TED podcast. It's fantastic to be seeing more people joining us to listen. And of course, where would we be without all the people who have been with us along the way? So a quick message to all of you. If you like this podcast, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts for us. It's that little rating with the stars next to our name on Apple Podcasts. And we read every single review that comes our way. So thank you for that. Wow, next week's Thanksgiving here in the U.S. Okay, um, that's all from us here at Outrage and Optimism today. Thanks for listening. We have another episode coming your way next week, right here, same time, same place. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.